Welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club Podcast. It's an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in community today. I'm Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and today we're going to focus on the book Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marine Brown. Uh, so we're going to ask, what is Emergent Strategy? How does it change the way we think about leadership and leaving the world a better place for future generations? So before we begin, we're going to acknowledge the Gabrielino and Tongva peoples as the traditional caretakers of the Los Angeles Basin and South Channel Islands. Pay respects to the ancestors, elders, and all our relations, past, present, and emerging. We're doing this live book club discussion in partnership with Mockingbird Analytics. So Jessica, welcome to the club. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Mockingbird? And you have an announcement for us too. Yes, it's very exciting. So I am Jessica Payne. I am the founder of Mockingbird Analytics and our sister nonprofit, Mockingbird Incubator, um, where we work with small and emerging nonprofits to help them build up the infrastructure they need to be sustainable and make measurable and fruitful change in the world. Um, but first, I want to thank USC for having us, collaborating with us, and I was very sort of pushy with Aubrey and told her I had an idea and she came to me and said okay I, you can hear my idea and so I proposed that we make sure that as we talk about this work we're not just talking about it we are actually tangibly contributing to the work so um, I had hoped to bring on Danielle Taylor who is one of my colleagues that we have worked with and who works in DEI consulting to be our sort of voice that we amplify in this moment, um, acknowledging our own sort of whiteness and privilege. But she was not able to make it here because storms in Virginia knocked out her electricity. However, one of the other things that I really wanted to do and was my crazy idea to Aubrey is making sure that by not just talking about the work, we tangibly contributed to it by making a donation to the Audrey Lord Project, who I believe Adrienne Murray Brown was the executive director of for a while, no longer. Um, so my company is going to be matching donations up to $500 and Danielle's consulting company, TMI Consulting, is also going to be matching with another $500 donation. The USC very generously said that they would purchase additional copies of the book to give away to our three highest donors. Um, so if you are interested in making a donation to the Audrey Lord Project today in uh, gratefulness for the work being done in the communities by Adrienne Marie Brown and many others, um, please send us the receipt for that donation and we will pick the highest donation and send you guys a copy of the book. Um, so I think that's it on my part, but I wanna make sure that we start this off by saying, this is a fairly white panel. I don't wanna make assumptions, but I wanna start by acknowledging my whiteness and privilege in talking about the work of a queer person of color in this moment, so. 
All right, so let's finish up with our introductions. Um, so I'm just gonna go around uh, how I see you. <laughs> uh, Jen, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thanks so much, Aubrey, and thanks so much for the Bedrosian Center and to Mockingbird Analytics for, for having us. Um, I'm Jen Bravo. I've spent about the last 20 plus years in nonprofit advocacy and management, local governance, technological and social innovation, I've worked on designing and operating open innovation programs for National Geographic Society and NASA's Centennial Challenges Program. And for the last year and a half, I have been focused primarily on climate resilience in the Los Angeles Basin. I'm thrilled to be here. And even though I didn't know about Jessica and Aubrey's plan to match donations, I would like to offer to also match the donations that are made today as well. So thank you all for being here. And Jessica, thank you so much for calling out the place that we are, the privilege that we hold, and how important it is for all of us to be passing the mic uh, when we have the opportunity to do so. Uh, next, Meg, can you uh, tell everyone about yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Aubrey, for having me here. Um, and Jessica, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. My name is Megan Goulding. I'm the Director of External Relations at the Price Center for Social Innovation, which is a research center housed um, in the Price School of Public Policy at USC, focused on um, the academic field and practice of social innovation, which I'm pretty excited um, to talk about in the ways that it really aligns with, with the book today. And I think um, it's something that Aubrey was certainly thinking about when she invited me to join today. Um, in addition to my role as ex uh, Director of External Relations, I'm also a fifth-year doctoral student in the Price School as well. So I am, um, knock on wood, finishing up my um, doctorate in the professional um, the professional doctorate program here at Price, the Doctor of Policy Planning and Development. So kind of two hats um, that I'm, I'm looking at this, uh, this book and this conversation with today. So thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us. I'm so thrilled, um, especially since you're doing you know, multiple jobs at the same time. So appreciate it. <laughs> we all do that, I think. <laughs> and last and not least is Brittany. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be here as well. Um, I am so glad to meet uh, Megan and Jen and always love being around and with uh, Jessica and Aubrey. I am sorry um, that we are not going to be with um, Danielle. Danielle. Thank you. Sorry. Um, and I received my PhD in urban uh, development, urban planning and development at USC. In the last few years, I have been a lecturer at uh, CSUN and Cal Poly and um, teaching uh, like inclusive cities, participatory planning, um, the history of urban planning, you know, the ideas of like the evolution from a very top-down world into a progressively bottom-up world. And um, this uh, this reading was very interesting, and it was um, especially as like placed against uh, the urban planning as it is. Mm. And um, yeah, so it was a really nice. I'm very looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. So you know, I just wanted to start with something. Um, just to thank you, uh, Jessica and Danielle, who is not here, and uh, Jen for um, matching donations. That's really great. So. Um, send your receipts in to Bedrosian or Mockingbird. Um, we'll share uh, email addresses later. Um, so let's talk about what is 
emergent strategy. <laughs> Let's just jump in. Who wants to start, everybody? What's emergent strategy? Let's talk about what emergence is first, right? And then we can talk about what emergent strategy is. Um, so Adrian Marie Brown uh, uses Nick Obolensky's definition of emergence and um, says that emergence is the way that complex systems and patterns arise out of relatively simple interactions. And it's the way that those small actions and connections create complex systems that become ecosystems and societies. And that within emergence, um, the health of the smallest thing is, is the health of the large thing. So the large is reflected in the small and, and back and forth. Um, and then I'd love to hand it off to someone else to, to talk about what emergent strategy is. I feel like Jessica or Megan might be really good at that. <laughs> well, I'll talk about like sort of how, to, how I see it in very, very like simplistic, boil yeah. it down. I would call it a more evolved leadership strategy. You know, and if I wanted to to sort of expand upon that adaptive relational leadership model that really prioritizes small and constant change. And if I wanted to add one more word to it or one more perspective, I would call it a uniquely sort of female leadership perspective as well. And I think um, we might get to this a little bit later, but it is it is maybe one of the ways that it, it differs from a sort of a traditional Lead, you know, linear and, and perhaps kind of traditional masculine leadership um, of organizations. So um, those are some of the sort of initial thoughts I had on on what it is and and how, you know, how I think of it, at least. Yeah, I think for me, it's, I work sort of very closely to the ground with brand new nonprofits, people who might have an idea, but don't quite understand the structure to implement it and maybe don't have a whole lot of context about how to do the work and how that exists in nonprofits and how to organize outside of the nonprofit um, corporate structure that's put in place. And so we use emergent strategy in practice, and this is because this is what emergent strategy means to me, um, as a way to introduce the interconnectivity of all of the work being done in social justice right now and having I think the most important sort of definition for me that I try to get across to our incubator participants is that idea that she talks about in the book of being an inch wide and a mile deep or a mile deep and an inch wide um and the ecosystems work that is put into this book is really what informs a lot of how we teach infrastructure in nonprofit management. So to me, it's really about the infrastructure of how you interact within a system. Mm -hmm. And in an intentional way. And, and I think a core element of it is this um, embodying the ways of being with each other and with the work sort of rather than just thinking about them structurally or talking about them. There's like a way of being that's sort of deeply ingrained in, in the way she talks about emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. I very much like, um, she has a line, like I want to feel and other people are like, but I have the data say, and I'm, I'm one of the data say people. And, um, and I really, and I really appreciate it. And I've learned much, a lot from taking a more somatic embodied approach that, or how she presented 
as like somatic, um, interrelational, like um, justice making. I, um, it's, it, it broke my heart a little. I'll just break, <laughs> this is how I felt. It broke my heart a little because I'm reading this book thinking like, this is the way planning should be done. This would be the way uh, we have uh, communities really uh, like taking on their own voice, their agency and being much more self-directed and being able to protect themselves against, um, you know, these overarching, overwhelming forces. And it's just not how it's done. You know, like uh, Megan pointed out that it's very feminine and that's definitely and feminist and that's definitely the Octavia Butler, right, behind it. Like I, I could feel the Butler power. Um, and unfortunately, Octavia Butler really isn't in most city council meetings. And it really, and I, she should be, <laughs> she should be. Um, and so this is one of the things where I really like to know that this is, uh, you know, um, this uh, good publishes a lot. I noticed she had like six books out since this one. Um, and I like to think that there are more books like this because perhaps this is the process of mainstreaming these ideas. Uh, in some of the books that we've recently read, um, it seems to me that this, um, and I, I think some of the words that you um, have already used um, embodied um, constant change. Um, intentional. Intentional. All of these things are sort of taking, um, you know, begin in these small little places and then are, you know, rippling out and, and then rippling towards each other. Um, you know, I'm thinking of um, the book that we just um, talked about. Uh, the podcast is actually not up yet, but the book, All We Can Save, um, which is about climate change and how we can uh, reshape and reimagine the world better. Um, and that, you know, nonprofits are sort of, um, you know, you at the incubator are, you know, teaching this as the, the way to be. Um, I'm seeing it in um, anti-racist movements um, that, you know, part of this is, is about uh, recognizing diversity and inclusion. And it's cyclical, you know, that, that there is no final right answer, right? We always have to change and grow. Um, the sort of biomimicry, it just feels like I'm seeing it in lots of little pockets. Um, and what I appreciated about this book is that um, it's looking at all these things that I'm seeing in different pockets um, mm -hmm. as, you know, process. Yeah, it's interesting too. It resonates a lot with the work I've been doing in climate resilience, this concept of reintegration. So Obviously, over the last few millennia, we have had a separation of humans from nature and sort of a domination over. And this, we talked about this a lot when we talked about all we can save. And to me, this emergent strategy is, um, is getting back to an integrative nature where we are part of sort of natural cycles and we can use biomimicry for learning and we are connected to each other in deeper ways. And so it's, to me, it's like the thread that I'm seeing become quite popular right now, which is really, really encouraging is this sort of concept of reintegration. It's also very democratic. Um, and, you know, uh, Meg, you and I have been working 
um, to uh, do some episodes of the bigger picture. Um, and so the work that you're doing at Social Innovation, you know, uh, even before you read this book, um, took in a lot of these I- ideas. Um, do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about Social Innovation? And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I'm the Director of External Relations at the Price Center um, of social in- for Social Innovation at USC. And the field is um, is really young. It's, it's an emerging field, um, but we think certainly relevant and important for a lot of um, the work and, and sort of the movements underway right now um, for social change. And the definition that we at the center use that um, Gary Painter and Kristen Beckman and Giovanna Rosen have developed over the last few years is that social innovation is an iterative, inclusive process that uses innovation frameworks to achieve more effective and just solutions to complex problems. So we think about these sort of big, quote unquote, intractable social problems, homelessness, for example, closing the achievement gap, criminal justice system issues, et cetera. Um, and sort of recognize that traditional policy approaches have not really moved the needle on these big issues, right? And that there needs to be a different way of bringing stakeholders together to co-design solutions to these problems to pilot, to test um, at the small scale in a adaptive, non-linear, um, you know, uh, sort of scale and perspective that la- that allows for constant learning and constant change and constant improvement. So it really, that the process, the social innovation process that we work within at the center and apply to and sort of bring um, to all of our projects and partnerships really aligns so well with a lot of the key concepts in this book. And so it was really exciting for me to read about it, um, you know, and, and thinking about how it kind of differs from traditional policy approaches, but also traditional leadership models um, and models. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of kind of symmetry and alignment here. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, the big thing, um, you know, when you're talking about co-design, uh, you know, the, the sort of key idea of uh, emergent strategy is also this idea of connection and building on relationships, you know. Um, and you know, traditional ivory tower sort of research mm-hmm. is, you know, the old white guy, you know, in his office doing his research by himself, right? Um, and how wonderful that is changing. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely one of the one of the really big pieces that stuck out to me. And, in, and I would say one of the core tenets of social innovation, if not maybe even the most important piece, is this notion of co-designing directly with the people who are leading, who have the vision, who have um, the sort of the real expertise on whatever issue it is that you are trying to solve. So at one point, um, the author talks about how, you know, how their organization or an organization that she used to work with approach working with community partners. And they said they don't go anywhere they're not invited to, right? Which is such a simple way of saying, you know, the the tenants that I think we really try to live up to is um, taking, you know, taking the direction and and taking leadership from those who are really at the core of of these issues and being true, authentic partners 
in a sustained way, right? And so the notion of building these authentic relationships um, as sort of step one and probably the most critical piece of social change work also really resonated with me and, and our work at the center. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, what you're doing, Jessica, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this book is a really important sort of introductory moment for a lot of people to the connection between their own sort of like spiritual direction and what the actual work looks like on the ground. It's kind of a good melding of those two things. And so I find it really useful to teach from in that sense, because a lot of the people that are starting nonprofits are coming from a place of faith um, and they have the ability to do good, really good intentional community work. And I find her language in the book really helpful in marrying those two things. I also think it does a really good job of subverting some of the conversation that would lean towards sort of white saviorism and how that also often comes from a place of good intentions with social justice work. and makes it a more ecosystem-based process where you do have to acknowledge other people are in this space doing this work at the same time. Um, And you are not coming upon a problem all by yourself. You didn't discover it. Um, And I like the way that she structures that work together with innovation as a way to inclusivity. Some of the most... um humorous sections for when she's talking about charismatic leaders and she's talking about herself and Mm -hmm. the flaws and faults and pitfalls of charismatic leadership. And I was just like, check, check, check down the list, right? Because these are things that we sort of see among some of the most well-intentioned leaders, but Mm -hmm. getting too caught up in their singular vision, thinking that they sort of can't trust anybody else to, um, to build their vision and kind of like not letting people into the process and these sorts of things. And I thought, um, you know, I know Aubrey's going to ask us at the very end who should read this book. And I was like, charismatic leaders (laughs) to get introduced to this idea of welcoming people in of trusting. I mean, it's one of the principles she talks about, right. Is that um, trust the people. And if you trust the people, they become trustworthy, which was that inversion from the Tao Te Ching which I thought was fascinating that she did that she did that inversion. But this idea that only together can we even get this work done. This work mm-hmm. can't be done by by single uh, a single visionary person, right? Um, well, and I mean, you know, in all of these conversations about white supremacy, one of the big things is this idea of sort of perfection and individualism. That you know, there can be one person who does it all, um, which is impossible. <laughs> just doesn't exist. You know, the myth exists, but, um, you know, in reality. Um, it's also damaging for that person. Like it mm-hmm. just, it doesn't actually work for anybody, right? Because, because the one person who feels the weight of the world on their shoulders is holding all this responsibility for their vision. They can't do all that work on their own and that's crushing. Um, so it's just one of those like hyper-individualism isn't going to work well for anybody. Um, And she talks a lot about this balance, which I liked, you know, when she's talking about murmuration and some of the other um, natural uh, phenomena that we can try to mimic. And she's talking about murmuration and the need to be close enough, but not too close. 
like the, you, the birds don't actually lose their individuality. They're close enough to stay aligned and to be in, to remain in alignment, but not too crowded. And I was just thinking about how important that is in our work, that we all bring something individual and special. My colleague calls it, everybody has their superpower. Um, but that close alignment's really important so that we can shift together. And that's a fine line. I don't think I've actually ever seen people do it really, really well. People are yeah. trying. I mean, um, we've had not so much practice. <laughs> uh, I think maybe in, when we were kids, we had more practice. Um, you know, the way you watch, you know, middle schoolers, you know, make up their own games and, um, you know, just get immersed in, in each other. Um, that doesn't, that happens less and less as we get older. Um, but seems like we're realizing is really the way we need to go. Um, I sort of have two directions that I, that I want to go. I want to sort of dive more into sort of, uh, what the principles of emergent strategy are. But I also want to talk about um, something that I find really important is, is this idea that um, in all of this uh, is Octavia Butler uh, and her science fiction and how that plays into the way um, Adrian Marie Brown um, thought about strategy. So I, I, which way would you like to go? <laughs> Well, as you mentioned on Twitter, it's the anniversary of Octavia Butler's birthday today. Yes. So I feel like we do need to spend some time mm -hmm. in honor um, of her work. Mm -hmm. So have uh, all of you read Octavia Butler or some of her a little bit? Okay. So now to Megan. Are you a big fiction reader, Megan? I... Um, I do like fiction. I um, am sort of well known among my loved ones for not liking science fiction. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's perhaps the separation here. But don't let that stop you. Oh, <laughs> science fiction is such a broad category. I'm imagining that we could find something in that category that Megan would I'm probably sure. love. I'm sure. <laughs> if, you, if you want to read Octavia Butler, I would suggest Kindred. Um, okay. Sort of the most approachable for folks who don't think they love science fiction. Great. Thank you. Um, Brittany, were you going to say something? Did I yeah, I mean, I've had Lilith Brood in my um, queue forever, mm -hmm. but I don't have a lot of time to read for pleasure as much as I love to. And recently, and Aubrey <laughs> will attest to this, I'm like, is it on tape? <laughs> and this, I'm aged myself. I just said tape, um, but I will actually read an audiobook. I'll read a text, the text on my uh, like my iPad, and then I'll listen to it while I'm doing the dishes, and it's in and out. And I really love the whole process. So I, I had Lilith Brood, didn't get around to it, and then you know uh, I called her good. I apologize. I mean Brown. Um, Earlier, like, you know, early on in the text says, like, if you haven't read Octavia Butler, Butler, put this down, go read, come back. And I was like, you know, you're right. So then I went to the Internet. The Internet tells me, as Aubrey just did, you know, start with Kindred. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't even put it under the category of science fiction. I was reading the essay at the very end of the book. It says, like, it's really more along the lines of Kafka and metamorphosis where it's just like, you know, there is no explanation for what happens. It just does. Um, but what she, uh, in Kindred, what she does is she takes a woman, a contemporary African-American woman in, in Altadena actually, 
uh, uh, Los Angeles and, um, and takes her all of a sudden back to 1819 Antebellum, Maryland. And it's, you know, the experience of slavery as a woman, um, inside the house and outside the house and then like the entire social culture, um, and kind of <laughs> it's very sociological. It really, like, it really is like she's within the book. She's actually very explicit. She's like, this character is a counterpoint to the um, the mammy stereotype. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who's surviving, and there are all different types of people within it. And the the idea I think that we can uh, draw from just that book is that like. This is, there's an ecosystem of people who are all allowing and helping each other survive and they are inside and outside their own realities. And, um, it is only because of each other. There's this insane, actually like sad, the driving interdependence in kindred, but it's there all the same. So she has to, our protagonist needs to move forward with that understanding. And it's, uh, an incredibly powerful book. Yeah, and a very quick read as well. Um, you know, and in that story, you know, I think that the three main pillars of emergence strategy are collaboration is key, um, change is constant, um, and you know that we really need to smash the status quo, right? And you know, I think um, without giving too much away, the way she handles expectations in the story and about who's good guy, who do we, who's the bad guy, who do we have to save, um, really upends expectations, which we shouldn't have expectations, right? Um, we all do. We all, all have these biases, but um, we really need to interrogate them. Um, you know, and recently we did um, a, an episode on Parable of the Sower, which is um, a really... Um, it is science fiction. It's a sort of post-apocalyptic sort of story. So I don't know if that's going to be your thing, Meg, but um, it really sort of felt like, you know, there was a plague, <laughs> a uh, autocratic president, um, rampant capitalism, individualism. Um, it's very on the nose. It's so on the for nose. The, for, for the moment. Um, you know, which I think is part of the reason, too, why um, I keep seeing Octavia Butler come up in um, in books like this, uh, in uh, All We Can Save, in, you know, these are all women who grew up reading Octavia Butler. But Octavia Butler was this woman who, um, she read the news like crazy. She was obsessed. She took all sorts of notes. And I think she really saw some of the patterns and, you know, where we were going, you know, um, and, you know, her idea is that it's really easy to imagine uh, the worst. Um, but what if we imagined better? What if we gave ourselves permission to risk and imagine something that isn't the worst? Um, and, it's such a freeing thought. <laughs> and it's actually a necessary thought, I think. Mm-hmm. So something Adrian Marie Brown talks about in this book, and we've been talking about with some of the other books we've been reading, is the necessity of imagining a better future in which mm-hmm. everybody can thrive, that is just, that is healthier. Without that imagination and, the, and actually envisioning and building those models of that future world, 
how can we fight for it, right? What are we fighting for if not this um, better future? And so I think in this book, she even says she feels like she's living in someone else's imagination, which I thought was <laughs> a really lovely turn of phrase. And that that the capacity to build imagination, which is the thing that she loves about science fiction. And she mm -hmm. talks about it. She says, I think she calls it even like science fictional behavior or something, which is like, what, what do we have to believe and do now to build the world that we want to live in, in the future? And that's what Octavia Butler is consistently doing in her stories, right? She's exploring all the, the facets of humanity and having visions for what, what that might look like, uh, fantastical future visions, but um, some really exciting stuff. And I think I really resonated with the, the way in which Brown used science fiction throughout her life as a way to envision better futures. I, I grew up on Star Trek, The Next Generation. I was like such a Star Trek kid and still are it's okay and I still am and you love me anyway um the thing about the thing about Star Trek is that it's at its core it's Gene Roddenberry's vision of, of humanism right it's a humanist vision of the world that we're better together that through cooperation rather than conflict we can progress um and for a kid who grew up like me in a really like isolated rural setting without any kind of supportive community the star trek world was like this amazing future possibility mm -hmm. that really shaped my worldview for a very long time and continues to do so and so i loved that that this book was almost a conversation with herself in many ways about that those learnings um, on all the other conversations she's had with grace lee boggs and all of her other wonderful mentors but that she actually was in conversation with octavia butler and like in conversation with science fiction. Yeah. I mean, in so many ways, you know, um, the work of uh, making social change is that first you, you you sort of root, right? You're you're figuring out what you want, what you believe, right? And then you're finding your community, building those relationships. And then you work together on systemic change, right? And then you go back and you do it all over again. Um, and in so many ways, I think all of you do that in your work. Um, already, you know, without knowing, you know, this sort of um, theory of emergence and strategy. Um, for me, for me, this was actually the second time I'd read this book. I read this book back in 2019, as we were just starting our incubator program. And reading it the second time, now the incubator is three years old. We've learned a lot. We've iterated a lot. Um, and realizing how many of the, the principles of this book subconsciously made its way into the incubator and how we teach infrastructure from an emergent place. And I like, when I wanted to give myself a pat on the bat for like reading it the first time, I didn't love it, I'm gonna be honest. The second time I like, it hit differently but I realized how much of it like you are able to absorb and put into your work, even if you read it and were like, it didn't quite like appeal to me. And, and like Retina, I am like a data person. I wanted, I want sort of the practicality of it. And the, the poetry doesn't always move me as much. 
Um, but I thought it was so, my favorite part of the, the book is actually when she starts talking about the role of innovation mm-hmm. in work and how emergence supports innovation. And that is like the principle upon which we founded the incubator is that uh, we want people to come in with new ideas and drive innovation in the social justice sector just as much as we would in any other sector. Right. Just because, you know, goodwill is huge, Catholic charities is huge, and doing some good work doesn't mean there isn't room for the people to come in and innovate the space and push it forward. Um, my favorite quote from the book is the Maya Angelou poem that she quotes and the line where she says, the horizon leans forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was such an important um describer of what emergent strategy is is the sort of like constant leaning towards something else and how sort of not static that is and I think a lot of social justice work doesn't feel like it's iterative it has its moments where people feel very stuck in it and hopeless and the idea of a horizon leaning forward is I think incredibly powerful within Mm-hmm. those movements because yeah. so many people again are coming from this faith-based space where they sort of need that hope in order to drive their social change work you know um Brittany, i was thinking about what you said about cities and planning um and recently i saw um i think from the archives of the met it was a video about cities from the from like 1975 uh, and it was called organism, you know, very, very serious. Um, but about how, you know, uh, cities can um, act like a body that um, they, you know, streets are, you know, your veins and the little cars are, you know, your blood cells and your organs are the buildings. And um, and what I was thinking is that, you know, in some ways, you know, that biomimicry was, um, is there, you know, when people started building, you know, cities and thinking about planning. Um, But then our sort of, um, you know, sort of European centric culture um, decided, you know, individualism. So instead of thinking about, you know, our body and how we're part of nature, it's just, you know, the body. Um, And so, I think there are definitely, you know, the seeds there already in urban planning. So how how do you um, get your students to think about emergence in their planning moving forward? I love this question because it reminded me, like, if we took, there is a lot in urban planning and the history of urban planning that takes the fractal idea and just, like, yeah. runs with it. Right. That's all it is. And the reason fractal is like, I actually kind of got itchy when I saw fractal. I was like, ah! um, because again, that, that is a very like make it small, scale it up. It's fine. It's good in every, uh, like universally great. And I mean, the, uh, Charles and Ray Eames, uh, like did the powers of 10 documentary. And so like, it's not just like the hardcore Moses types <laughs> that are thinking in terms of fractalization of the city, but, um, you know, like leading designers and thinkers about, uh, like art 
have been interested in how we scale up as humans and through space. Um, and the failure on the part of planning and planners and people, and this is actually something that was really like this really great paper where um, the question is like rational planners. Why, do, why does rational planning hold on? Why is it always scientific? Why do we refuse to take on the messiness of the world? And this book is like an embrace of messiness. Yeah. Like being iterative, uh, like going back and forth and the my, uh, murmuration, like all of these, like this is a responsive process. This is a breathing thing. Um, there is a great article from 1996 that says like, we know better. We're in the postmodern world. We know that there are many truths, many t um, publics, uh, many different scales and nothing. There is no master fit. Right. There is no one genius making everything work. Um, so why do we still do this? <laughs> What's the problem? And the reality is that people like even though and this is a, in the paper, like we all know it's a snake pit. And yet we want the clock factory. That's all. And so people go out there in the world and they uh, like we become confronted. And this is the history of bureaucracy, largely, and not just that. Um, people go out there in the world, they're like, this is too hard to be iterative. Like, and this is why I said, like, I'm delighted to know this is becoming more mainstream. And obviously, we're in a process of a social revolution and movement and change. But um, wherein the fractal notion will start embracing others. Mm -hmm. will be matched and paired and like not just paired with but like accompany the other ideas that are in Brown's book. Well, I think Meg got at it when she was talking about social innovation, you know, that um building the relationships is is the core. Um so you don't have to do all the work <laughs> because you're doing it together. Um but we aren't really taught that. I mean, you know, it is, you know, um leaders lead you know, um, even though, you know, someone who is a leader doesn't have to be, you know, in the top position, you know, in infrastructure. Um, all of us have come out of the university. Um, a lot of the folks who are listening um, come out of university and, you know, it's such a hierarchical system. Um, and we're all frustrated with the hierarchy and how, we can't get the things that we know we want to do. Um, for instance, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, you know, everybody agrees we need more faculty of color to um, show our students that we care, we're listening, and make sure that there's representation of ideas and people. And yet, we keep hiring. We keep hiring white people. You keep hiring um, people who look like the people on this panel. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. When we're lucky. I mean, like, it's, like, it's still, it's still skewed towards say, white men. It's white men. Yeah. And um, I'm like, and again, I understand the privilege of the white woman and I'm like, uh, <laughs> but it, it still is very much a condition where there's the replication of, you know, who do you feel most comfortable with socially as them saying, like, we look, people look for hiring the people who look like them. Um, and, you know, we look to faculty to be the committee, you know, when we really should have a lot more students, we should have a lot more students. Um, 
thinking about where they want to go. Um, we should have, you know, folks like Meg who are doing work and so social innovation um, alums. We should have those people on, you know, really that first part of the, the committee, right? Um, that is hard, right? So we do the easy thing. Um, but I, I hope, <laughs> thank you, Donna Jean, we are women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, could I, could I go back to something that you guys, that Aubrey, you raised just a minute ago about, you were talking to Brittany about fractals and then relationships that Megan had mentioned. And I, I think there's something interesting you said, which was that doing things together means that we don't have to do it all, right? We're doing it, it's a shared experience. And when I think about urban planning, I actually think about a larger change even than community involvement at a core level in decision-making. I actually think about letting nature do the things that nature was good at, flood management and water infiltration and all kinds of wonderful things that we can actually work to bring back into our urban systems. Those ecosystem services can do a lot of that work for us. Not everything has to be in concrete. Um, a dear friend of mine said today that the that the LA River was incarcerated. And I thought that was a really beautiful and poetic way to talk about what we do to natural systems. Um, and in this concept of sort of reintegration of us into the natural systems and identifying places where we can use biomimicry for our own learnings and progress and processes, thinking about how we can let nature take over some of this stuff again, um, obviously with careful planning and save ourselves a lot of money and a lot of energy <laughs> managing it from the top down. Like these are hierarchical top down management structures that we've built. Obviously it's the Army Corps of Engineers model um, that we've been following for quite a long time now. And I think now is like the time where people are starting to explore what does it look like to you know, take the concrete channels out of the river and like really reintegrate the river back into the LA basin and meanwhile managing flood risk for folks and stuff. It's one of the core concepts of climate resilience that we work in is community engagement, natural, natural ecosystem services. Like how do we reintegrate the system so they're actually healthier and more sustainable going forward. And I just see so much of that in this concept of emergence. I like that. And and I think it goes back to um, that sort of science fiction mindset. Meg, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just, I love that. I love that the idea that you just shared, Jen, of, of really letting nature sort of not just take its course, but retake its course and, and think of it really as a... Um, as a core partner in, in social change work, if not really the lead, you know, in it a lot is. of ways. It is. It um, is. And we can be a partner to it. You know what yeah, I mean? We can I really love that. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking on that, I think. But um, I was also going to say that I love the fact that Adrienne Marie, Marie Brown, among her many, many other wonderful things she does, but I love that she's a doula and, and sort of, um, brings in that expertise and her experience of bringing children into this world, bringing life into this world um, throughout the book in a, a way that really 
resonated with me. I was telling um, the panelists that I have an eight month, eight month old baby. And so that is not so far away from my mind, that own experience of mine, but it really is in many ways, one of the most emergent um, experiences, right? It Like no matter what you do, no matter what you plan for in your own childbirth, it is going to be nonlinear. It's going to be whatever it wants, right? There is, nature is going to be the ultimate lead um, in that experience. So I, I love all of the different ways that Adrian Mary Brown uses to communicate these concepts of, you know, taking a step back and letting nature, letting different leaders, different partners, you know, really um, taking a step back and letting you, letting yourself learn from and be led by a lot of different people and a lot of different sort of natural systems. And, um, you know, her being a doula just, it really kind of sticks out at me on both, I think a personal level, but also just a very cool way of kind of communicating these practices. I love that. So we have um, about 10 minutes before we're going to open it up for questions. So um, if you want to put in the chat or in the Q&A, you can do whichever is more comfortable. Um, you can send in your questions and um, we can also unmute you if you would like to speak. Um, just say that you'd like to ask a question. Um, and in the so before we get into Q&A, I want to go back into some of the, we've, we've talked about a lot of those principles. Um, I think the principles she talks about are on page 41 to 42. Um, she's got, I think, seven principles. Um, so we talked, you know, about small is good. Um, we talked about change is constant. Um, I think we've talked about what you pay attention to grows. Um, uh, in different ways, not in the same language, but um, and I yeah, when we talk about intentionality, I think that that's yeah. really what what we're getting at there. Right. Um, uh, we've talked about. Um, so I think we've also talked about find that conversation that only the folks in the room are having and pay attention. Um, I think we we've we brought that up. Um, uh, there's always enough time for right work. I struggle with that one, man. There's so much urgency urgency to so much of this work that that is one of the ones that kind of hits me. And I have to be reminded that to do the work well, it actually takes time to do it in right alignment takes time because we are just bombarded with the urgency of all of these issues. And that's one for me that I've, I'm like, well, there's that's my homework. You know, like that's something for me to take and learn from. Yeah, and that that time is not an enemy. <laughs> you know, everything doesn't have to be done today. Um, and th and I think that fits in with the next principle, which which is move at the speed of trust, which is that you want to make sure that you're moving with your murmuration, right? That you're moving with your team. That um, you're doing what the baby wants, right? <laughs> um, my favorite is never a failure, always a lesson. This is my favorite too. Um, you know, particularly since we are so taught that failure is not an thought, option. You know, there's the only winning. You know, nope. we must win. It looks like three of you would like to talk to that. No, um, never a failure, always a win. Who would like to go first? 
Um, I love this in the context of our work. Again, I'm just going to keep referring back to that. Yeah. I'm non-academic here, but um, I think it is so important. Most people starting nonprofits or running nonprofits now see everything as sort of the black and white failure or success and building into their work, the sort of iteration of this is the scientific method. The scientific method is a perfect way of getting to that win. Um, and we encourage all of our participants, you know, try a hundred different ways. It's never going to be perfect. And I think that's the place where so many people get stuck in their justice work is feeling like, well, this isn't good enough. Yeah. And it's easier to do nothing than it is to start with something. And she really gets into some of that and how complex the work is at the end of the work. But I think the the way to sort of frame that through action is are those like facilitation techniques that she talks about in the end. Like the beginning and the end of the book to me are the most important because they are the most practical. They are the things that I see people taking away and making actionable into their work. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brittany, did you want to? That was Oliver. This? He's our male representative on the podcast. Perfect. <laughs> I, I think we're all tabbies. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I like a million years ago, my first boss, I blew something like a project. I would just messed it up perfectly. <laughs> speaking of perfectionism, I went the other way. And she said, stop, mistakes only make you better. And ever since then, that's kind of been my mantra. And I'm a person that's like notoriously hard on herself. And so like, but this is something that I share with my students because people are raised to, they have, everybody has to know everything already. We all have to be good at everything already. Like you don't, there's no space for learning. And like people, uh, we struggle with the idea of, we understand like practice is one thing, but practice, like a lot of people even feel like that the precondition for learning how to practice means that you still need to know, know everything anyway. Like you need, everybody needs some base of knowledge. That's, it just strikes me over and over. And whenever I tell my students mistakes only make you better, they're like, Oh, that's nice. It's, it's just like a very freeing notion. And I really like to see that um, in the book as well. It resonated with me so much. I think in higher education too, there's this idea that, that learning is only one way, you know, the professor teaches. Um, the professor yeah. Lectures. Yeah. I had that exact moment starting in grad school when I realized in my first class, like everybody had read Jane Jacobs and I had never heard of Jane Jacobs, except I was in school for planning. So of course I would be reading Jane Jacobs. And right. yeah, I think everybody starts there. And like our opportunity is always to stand next to the giants that already exist. And those could be other organizations. Those could be Grace Lee Boggs as your mentor. Um, but everybody has to get there eventually somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, innovation never happens without failure, right? And so if you think about it, even on like the corporate side, pharmaceutical tests, right? And it's sort of this classic R&D model, like 
failure teaches you what works. And so it's, it's, it's the most simple sort of concept, but I think everyone does struggle with it um, for all of the reasons that, you know, Brittany and Jessica, you, you mentioned right now, but it's, um, you know, innovation does not happen without failure. It's, it's sort of. There's a shocking amount of failure happening in Silicon Valley all the time. Those people get funded again. We, we would be so yeah, lucky right. to, get, to get some of that funding for some of the social justice right. work. But yeah, absolutely. Like failure is the thing. It's your teacher. It's the thing that changes. Right. Mm-hmm. It is interesting then what is society, what kind of failure society will uh, like truck, mm-hmm. right? Like we will like, so long as it gets us loads of money, like try and try again, no problem. Um, but yeah, like as Megan was saying, like there is nothing interesting that we know now has not come about because somebody screwed up a lot first. Right. You know, yeah, like it's, it's, this is a world that's based on try and try again. And if we could mm-hmm. in, like incorporate that into not just the capital, uh, capitalist condition, we'd be, I think, all better off. Right. There's a question of who's allowed to fail which I actually think is a really important question for us to address because there are groups of people who are kind of allowed to fail all the time and they tend to fail upward and they tend to get promoted. (laughs) And you're like, how did that happen? And then there are groups that are, and and people who are just never allowed to fail even a tiny bit. And the amount of scrutiny I've seen for a $10,000 grant when I know how much money is just being thrown at, at problems, you know, at the Silicon Valley level, just kind of, breaks my heart because we are we are infinitely harder on people who have the least in the society and give them the least ability to innovate to learn from failure and it's something that I think we should all be I mean everyone on this call obviously is but like really striving to shift in our society yeah absolutely mm-hmm. so there are two more principles and I think again uh, in our discussions, we've we've gotten to them. So less preparation, more presence. I wrote that one down to sort of remember on this call, but then I laughed at myself because I wrote it down, right? I was actively, <laughs> actively sort of undermining the principle, <laughs> like making my notes. I'm like, yeah, I really want to focus on less prep and more presence as I like write it in a margin. Well, and you know, you um, you talked about it even without referring to your notes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think um, you know, I think it's also in a, a longer a longer arc arc of less preparation, you know. Uh, and I think that's what you're talking about, um, you know, because it's also you know, it's not just failure but you know sometimes it's accidents sometimes it's serendipity sometimes it's you know something that was maybe right the other day is not right now um you know the way we were uh living might have seemed right 20 years ago um but we've reached this point where you know so many of us um have finally started listening to the marginalized voices or so many of us have realized that um, you know, it's, it's just not the way that it's been working is, is not working, you know, that, that, uh, academia needs, you know, an overhaul. <laughs> we need to, you know, shake up the status quo, um, put students first. I don't know. 
Aren't we there for this? Radical ideas. Put first. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And lastly, you know, trust the people, which I think, um, you know, as, as conversations I've had with your colleagues, Meg, um, at social innovation, um, I mean, it, it really is clear that, you know, um, you trust the students, you know, you trust your colleagues, you trust the nonprofits that you're partnering with. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about, um, the NDSC, which is Neighborhood Data for Social Change. Um, that project, which um, with a with a free training, you know, all the nonprofits around, anybody who wants to use this data can. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, you know, this wonderful gift um, and trusting that folks are going to use it, you know, in appropriate ways. And then, you know, finding out that there are a lot of nonprofits out there who are really using it to... Um, inform, you know, some of their questions, you know, uh, what should we do? Not just, you know, inform the answers, but inform the questions as well. Um, And so I like how we've gotten, you know, in our conversation about things that we liked and examples of how we're using it in work, we've gotten to all of the principles. Uh, So I feel like it's pretty solid. So, um, does anyone have any questions in the audience? You can raise your hand. I don't know. Actually, I, you, I'm saying that you can raise your hand, but I'm not sure that you'll actually be able to in this particular way. But um, you can put something in the chat or the Q&A. Otherwise, um, we can continue talking. <laughs> I feel like we have a lot to talk about still. Um, I, think we should, I think we should keep talking. I think you should ask us the question about experiments. You said, what kinds of experiments have you made since you first read the book? Ah, there you go. What well, kind I of done any experiments, but I was going to tell you about all the things I was thinking about doing. Excellent. What I've noticed since I read the book is a lot of the issues and challenges that Brown talks about are really, really, really common in my everyday work life. Everything from how do we hold people accountable in like a fair and just way, but it have it be true accountability. Oliver is really making an appearance now. Um, how do we avoid putting visionary people up on pedestals that recreate those power dynamics that we're trying to dismantle? How do we shift funding away from the charismatic rock star who gets the funding toward mission-driven funding and, and sort of like funding the the team that's doing the work and supporting the team. Um, And so I've been thinking about all those things that I see as I do grant making and as I work with NGOs. And one of the key takeaways for me was that I actually want to get really good at the kind of facilitation that Brown does, which I started thinking of as like revolutionary facilitation, but she, you know, she calls it emergent strategy facilitation which really moves away from these sort of traditional facilitation skills that I learned 20 years ago and have been using. And I want new ways of facilitating that actually make things easier and enable the groups to get more true consensus, more like authentic consensus and alignment and not even consensus, but just some alignment would be good. Shared vision. Um, You know, the tools that she offers at the end of the book, I think are super useful. I totally agree with Jessica. Like the stuff at the end of the book is really actionable And as much as I do love poetry, I am 
totally an action-oriented individual. And I'm like, oh, here's my checklist. This is exciting. And I'm going to, you know, learn from this. Like in a way, the book is an introduction to all the things that I want to go do more research on, learn more about. Mm -hmm. And the facilitation piece is a really big takeaway for me. Yeah, I think generally there's some really good big ideas, but I feel like some of those get a little bit buried towards the middle of the book. But when it gets to the end, I I felt like, oh, like the angels are saying, this is what I wanted all along was some very sort of like concrete do this, not that. And then remembering in sort of our facilitation of our incubator, like those are the things that people respond most to is the like, we need a, a list of things to do. And then people really need like a corollary list of I don't do these things to refer back to in order to sort of start engaging with the work authentically in their own space and sort of giving them the room to innovate outside of that. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of this book is that it really leaves open-ended through its own kind of, um, I don't want to call it disorganization because that sounds negative, but like its own sort of unique structure. Uh, Nonlinear. It's nonlinear. <laughs> it's definitely nonlinear. It's extremely nonlinear. Yeah. I think um, that's what I loved about it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you say that because um, I'm thinking back to a few of the books that we've read in conversations uh, with male faculty who are like, well, this is all well and good, but, you know, I want my list of what my list of to do's, you know, so I've read White Fragility, but now what, you know, um, so I've thought about myself and my whiteness in the world, but what do I do? You know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that she, uh, it, through this sort of nonlinear way that the poetry is there, the interviews are there. Um, her sort of memoir parts are there. Uh, her learning from Octavia Butler is there. Um, and that sort of, here's a list for the people who really like lists, um, all there. I think it touches with people who learn in very different ways. Um, you know, I think, um, she, you know, she's got some, um, I was going to say. Well, I think, I think that's why the book has been so successful as part of the nonprofit canon. Like it was written yeah. in 2017 and it has become sort of its own set of phenomenon. Like she just released Holding Change, which is the facilitator's guide to emergent strategy, which I just got in the mail like a day ago and couldn't dive into. But I feel like it's going to satisfy those people like Brittany, Jen, and I who are like, thank you for a checklist. Um, I did enjoy it. But then at the end, I'm like, thank you for the checklist. I need, I like both things. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't it, love a good it, list? Um, I like like I like Jessica. I like the beginning. I like the end. In the middle, I was like, "This is kind of messy." I, it's nice, but kind of messy. But Aubrey, the way you just described it makes for me. I now like kind of think the mess was necessary, like mm -hmm. it, because it is. Um, <laughs> this is a very inclusively written book in that she is getting at different mindsets pretty elegantly 
if we if we step back from it if i'm like you know if i'm like i want more outline structure to my writing <laughs> like if i can get over myself then i can write i recognize that this is a, the reason that's like i think it belongs so quickly it became uh like canonized and became the part of the canon so quickly is because it does that because it is kind of a multilingual if you will i just think it it speaks a sort of different cultural language to different people and there are parts of the book that are not for me and who i am and there are parts that are definitely like aimed at the people that like lists like me but i think that is the genius of that book and that's my takeaway upon second reading is oh those parts that i reacted to when i first read it i see very differently who those are for now <laughs> the other thing too is that um it's a book that doesn't have to be read from cover to cover mm -hmm. that way um you can sort of poke around and and read the pieces that um I felt the same way about the four agreements. Like I was good just reading the table of contents in that one. Yeah. And yeah. Like so, and that was one that, I, you know, I, I really liked the table of contents, but I never got into either. So there you go. Um, I actually really liked the middle of the book. That was sort of my favorite, my favorite section. Um, when I first started it, I wasn't sure about, about it. I was sort of, um, it was a lot of poetry and I kept thinking, what is this book about? And what, you know, what, like, what are we going to get at here? And I didn't really know where, like where we were going with it. Um, but once I got into the chapters on adaptation and um, decentralization, and then I thought, then I, it was a language that I know, right. Um, and that I, it was concepts that, were not new to me because it, as I've said, it really aligns with a lot of the work that we do at the Price Center. But um, it was, even though it weren't, it wasn't a new concept by any means. It was sort of a cool, optimistic, like fresh way of looking at these principles and these practices for me. And so I really enjoyed those chapters. the The last section that is sort of the the list and the how to, if you will was really helpful, but less applicable to my work because I don't do facilitation, right? And so it's something that I, I, I want to learn how to do and get good at. And I think it would, it would only um, strengthen and improve my work, um, but it's not something that I can readily sort of think about and apply to my job. And so, whereas the rest of it, I, I could. Um, and so I think I... And maybe have a little bit of a different perspective on the most um, applicable parts of, of the book. You know, it's so interesting, though, Megan, you do relationship building, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that many of the principles of good facilitation are the same principles as good relationship building. Oh. Um, they're it, like the the manifestation of it's a little different, but I think at its core, it's actually quite similar. And if you're good at relationship building, then you'd probably be quite a good facilitator. So you can teach me? That's what you're no, saying? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what I heard. I heard an invitation to teach me how to facilitate. We'll get coffee and we'll see how it goes from there. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. I'll be honest, I, I didn't really read the last part about facilitation. 
you know, that wasn't what I wanted to get out of this book. I wanted to, um, I didn't need the, I didn't necessarily need the practical parts right this second. Um, but I know that they're there and I can go back to them. Um, so yeah, that's. It's interesting. It's a very even split, I think. I feel like Jen is the one who's sort of like middle ground, like a little bit of both. Brittany and I are on the practical side. Aubrey and Megan are on the like more poetic side. It's good mixture. Well, you know, um, so Meg is a, uh, if you don't know, is an excellent writer. So um, you have to be a good storyteller, right? So you might not know where you're going in the beginning, but, you know, once you've told the story, um, yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny to describe it as poetic because um, I think the chapters that I really resonated with, I think, are beautiful. They're beautifully written. And and the imagery, you know, I'll go back to, like, her, her experience as a doula and, you know, all these different parts of herself that she brings to these chapters, you know, are beautiful. But in many ways, I think of, you know, what I read is, like, I, I would say in some ways practical, right? Like a sort of practical approach to building authentic relationships and that sort of thing. Cause I don't really, I do like to write, um, but I don't think of myself as a poetic person. I would, I would put myself more along sort of the analytical, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty hard J I'm not a P. So, you know? um, I am too, actually. I'm, I'm a J. <laughs> yeah. Just makes me laugh. Um, I think we've gotten to a lot of the questions. Um, one of the things that I did want to think about is, um, you know, what strikes you as sort of most divergent from old patterns? You know, I think we've gotten to some of that, but, you know, I think, um, and, you know, when I, when we're saying old patterns, you know, I, I do really mean sort of this Eurocentric white supremacist patterns that are in um our institutions in our relationships um what are the things that that strike you as really different i mean obviously like right now i would say um we as a society have wanted a right answer and wanted to see things as binary yeah. um and they're not even within computers, they're not just all ones and zeros, right? Um, that change is constant. That uncertainty is constant. Um, there, there isn't, you know, one hundred percent risk free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think there's kind of like two big categories of things that are really different. One is a decentralized model versus sort of a centralized hierarchical model. That's very disruptive, very democratic, but we're not actually that democratic of a society in terms of the way we function. So it's really, that's pretty radical. And then the other is, um, you know, a model of trust and collaboration versus sort of power dynamics and competition. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's no place for competition, but that uh, I think as we know how important stories are to, to what we believe about the world, we for a very long time have told ourselves that nature is all about competition and therefore competition is natural and it's just the way things are. It is natural law and therefore we justify it. And the more we learn about nature, the more we learn that there is tons of symbiosis, tons of collaboration. Like in many cases, collaboration is more important 
than competition in nature. And some species can't thrive without it. And I think that that's a nice reminder to us <laughs> that, that we also can't thrive without collaboration. So I think those are maybe two of the biggest um, like disruptive uh, sort of principles or models that are promoted by emergent strategy. For me, it's, it's, go ahead, Jessica. Uh, for me, it was just, it was a small, subtle thing that really, I feel like is going to make a big difference after my second reading of this in how I just talk about the work and her using the term movement work as opposed to nonprofit work is I think such an important acknowledgement of the nonprofit industrial complex and a sort of pushback against what nonprofits are by definition a tax status, not a way of making social change. And I think her very subtly not using the term nonprofit work throughout the book and instead terming it movement work places it both in the sort of historical arc of time but also reframes it away from this very corporate capitalistic origins, which a lot of nonprofits get stuck in as letting their sort of nonprofit and the way the IRS says that they can do business define their work. Mm -hmm. Because we always want the people that we work with to use their tax status as a means towards an end and not let it define them. And I think that was such a subtle but important point that she was making about how we talk about the work matters to our innovation and all of our sort of ideas about what is failure. To me, it also ties it more in this sort of ideal, more democratic community that, um, you know, nonprofit work uh, movement work is tied with with governance and policy work as well. That it's um, you know that it's about how we live um, together more than like this nonprofit, um, which you can envision that you know all of the different homeless nonprofits in LA could you know work together uh, versus sort of competing. Um, well, I think the term nonprofit has this immediate moment of devaluing the work. Yes. Because it is saying you can't profit from it. And, and the real root of nonprofit work is actually the profit of everyone at the end of the day. And I think that's a really important shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I like calling it movement work. I like calling it social good work or something along those lines where it's actually an affirmative. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Um, there's a new an organization I actually... Um, don't know much about them, but um, they call themselves Weavers. Um, and it is a social change organization if it's a nonprofit. I, I haven't really gotten into it, but um, I like that um, image of uh, movement work, Weavers weaving together people. Um, is there anything that we um, should have talked about that we haven't yet? We talked about a lot. I would just add, I mean, thinking about sort of old patterns versus some of the principles laid out, the the idea, the pushback on a linear notion of progress or that progress is always linear mm -hmm. really resonated with me. I mean, certainly on a on a 
professional level of the work that we do at the center, but also on a personal level, right? That, you know, we, we hold ourselves to this notion of, I'm going to do this, 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 everything's going to fall into place, you know, on the timeline that I want. And I set forth, you know, and when I was in the MPA program, everyone talked about your five-year plan, your 10-year plan. And as if these are just, you know, benchmarks that you cross off or something, but we, we all know that life redirects you this way and you have to do this for a little bit first, and then maybe you'll get here and then maybe you'll, you know, it's like shoots and ladders. And so, thinking about progress and and sort of reframing what that means um, in terms of both an organization as well as an individual's life, I think is a really powerful idea. I'm glad you brought that up. I really like the idea too, when we're talking about um, sort of economic growth, this idea that there, we just need to grow and grow and grow. Yeah. Or that you can. Or that you can, (laughs) you know, this idea that you can. Yeah, exactly. You know, there is, um, I think I wrote Kali on one of the sides of the one of the descriptions of something, and I was like, "Yeah, there is no creation without destruction." You know that that you do need to. Um, it's all a feedback loop, right? Reuse, reuse yeah. the, the building blocks. You know yep. that um, this idea that you're just going to constantly make more money, and what we see now, you know that that more money is totally being made, but. You know, at what cost? 35 individuals, you know, at what cost? Yeah. Um, okay. So did you like the book? I did. End up in the book. And, you know, as, as I said, I wasn't sure I was going to um, when I first started it, but I did like it. And, you know, if, if, I, so I also have taught um, as an adjunct faculty in the, the undergraduate program at Price, and I, I taught social innovation for two semesters. And I think I would add this to the syllabus, so or at least chapters of it. Um, so yes, I, I liked it, and I found it very applicable to our work. Excellent. Good. I'm glad. Jessica, Brittany? I'm not, I've always been on the fence about this book. I think it is an incredible tool for reaching the people that we work with. And I so appreciate it for that purpose. I think she's really wonderful at driving ideas and I wish her writing style was slightly different. (laughs) Yeah, I think I admire it more than I like it. Yeah, I really like what this book is and I like what she's doing in it. Um, But there were parts of it that I was just like, it was it felt choppy where she wasn't she was just like this is such a a jerky thing to say but I was like why just why are you republishing this why don't you just say a new thing um and it felt in some sense a strange regurgitation that also operated in to make it choppier but but I will teach it I will make sure that my students know her name and her principles because what she's doing is important. And this book is important. If I don't like a section, that's my thing. That's my problem. Yeah. Um, I feel very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I definitely liked some sections more than others. There were a few, I ended up skimming a little bit, Um, but I ended up being fine with the nonlinear structure it took me a little while to kind of get into it and be okay with it. At the beginning, I'm like, again, I'm kind of like, how am I supposed to read this? You know, 
Um, but I ended up really liking a lot of the stories and I thought the tools are really useful. The grounding in nature sections, the beginning of each chapter, I thought were really lovely and they were short enough that you could really get, get a little, just a little tidbit of like, how, how does a mycelium network operate or like a little tidbit about like, what is murmuration, you know? And I thought that was really lovely way to ground us. Um, and I think I said earlier, I, I really felt like almost more than anything, this is an introductory book. This is a book that introduces you to a number of concepts and some tools. And for those concepts that resonate with us, we'll go do more reading. So I do think like for those people, like you guys who aren't her teachers, it's a great introductory book for students or maybe for people who just aren't, you know, um, sort of immersed in like the social change, social innovation world. Cause I, I didn't feel like there was anything super new for me in it. Um, but I still really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, you know, some sections a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, using different language um, for things that you already do can be very um, helpful. Um, who should read it? charismatic leaders <laughs> yes but they won't because they won't know everything their staff <laughs> <laughs> i want all our founders to read this book you're founding a nonprofit, starting that nonprofit in the space where you understand that you're part of an ecosystem i think it's incredibly valuable to your mindset and how you set up the infrastructure of your new nonprofit and lean into your activism in a new way yeah. yeah absolutely i would say anybody in movement work which is maybe like a, a cheater answer because it's a big group but um you know anybody who is looking to uh really advance their their own work in sort of social change movements writ large and so that could be traditional nonprofit work. I think, you know, if government um, representatives read this, it would it would potentially be a very different way of, of uh, doing work together. Um, and I would also encourage, you know, at an individual level, whether or not you are sort of in social change work, if you are at a space of looking sort of at an individual level of where am I going? What am I doing? You know, where do I want to be? What do I vision for myself in the world that I want to be in? I think it would be a helpful book to people as well. And I think it's also helpful in corporate structures, understanding the difference between what a corporate structure is and what nonprofits strive to be and how they strive to be different. I think it does a pretty good job articulating what sort of more progressive systems can look like not that nonprofits always do a very good job at running their workplaces in non-hierarchical ways that sort of mimic the more sort of progressive parts of this but yeah I do think it I think people don't understand enough about how nonprofits can be different structurally they try to come in and often apply a business corporate model to a nonprofit structure and don't understand the potential for innovation in that space. I think all the people that ask, you know, Aubrey, when they come on this podcast and they're like, yeah, well, why not? What now? Um, they could, I, one would direct 
them quite simply to the end of the book. They didn't want to read the first part, you know, because that might not be their thing. Um, I mean, I thought that the, her uh, sections on agenda setting were really quite radical and very simple and elegant. Like, yeah, just do it. Doesn't need to be this long. Um, have other people set the agenda, like, because there is like agenda setting is, uh, like not just like a meeting, it's, you know, what is the institutional direction that you want to take? So making an agenda is a power, a position of power. And she kind of just like cracks it open in a very straightforward way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that leaders should definitely be reading it and people in government should be reading it. I love the like Darcy principles so much. Like we try to do that as we facilitate strategic plans with clients. And I think they're incredibly helpful for understanding like just how to make a decision, which is a lot of what people get stuck on in social justice work. Or everywhere. <laughs> I mean, yes. Um, yeah, I think um, I would love if uh, um, principals in high schools and middle schools, um, teachers, um, higher education, faculty, administrators, um, you know, as a, as a way to really um, reimagine how the university, how um, it could be more democratic in general um and um sort of for the future versus um naval gazing um did you have a favorite line where we're we're kind of going over so if you need to leave let me know but did you have a favorite line meg do you want to go first <laughs> i had two that i really liked and i think we've talked about the first one which is murmuration and it was um well, I talked about murmuration, but um, the second the second piece that I liked a lot was um, in the nonlinear and iterative chapter. Uh, it talked about um, babies and how they don't know how to eat or walk or poop, and parents don't know how to parent, right? Just because you read a book or you went to a class, you guys figure it out together like in the dead of night with everybody crying, like that's how you figure out, you know, what your baby needs. And that's how they tell you what they need. And I read that and, you know, it resonated with me and sort of appreciation of nonlinear and and emergent models, but also it felt like somebody put a camera up in my house and I, I don't know when that happened, but, um, but it was very much uh, writing about my life sort of in that moment. So that was my favorite passage. That's awesome. Um, I'll go next. So there's a section um, in the fractals chapter. It's on page 57. And she says, one major emerging lesson is that we have to create futures in which everyone doesn't have to be the same kind of person. That's the problem with most utopias for me. They are presented as mono value a new greener, more local monoculture where everyone gardens and plays the lute and no one travels. And I don't want to go there. She said, compelling futures have to have more justice, yes, and right relationship to planet, yes, but must also allow for growth and innovation. 
I want an interdependence of lots of kinds of people with lots of belief systems and our continued evolution. And to me, that was like everything that is wrong with, with like, like the, the, the visions of utopia, she exactly calls them out for what is wrong with them, which is that they are completely whitewashed for the most part and pretty boring. And you can't get people too excited about running around and playing the lute. And what we need are actually a real diversity of visions of a future where lots of different kinds of people can thrive. Um, and so that was sort of the, the message that I wanted to leave at the end of this podcast. Jessica, I feel like you already read your favorite line. Did you have another one or? I mean, I love the horizon leans forward. Or like I want to get it like art somewhere. Um, but there, we use a section of the introduction as one of our tone sets for when we talk about strategic planning in our incubator program. Um, and I'll read it to you. It's the crisis is everywhere. Massive, massive, massive. And we are small. But emergence notices the way that actions and connections create complex systems, patterns that become ecosystems and societies. Emergence is our inheritance as part of this universe. It is how we change. Emergence strategy is how we intentionally change in the ways that grow our capacity to embody the just and liberated worlds we long for. And I think for me, that just like hits me in the gut a little bit because Founding a nonprofit is often so lonely and running a nonprofit is so lonely. Um, being a founder is an exercise in like feeling like you're an island. Um, and I think it's so important as an introduction to you are not alone. We are here to do the work with you. Um, and you, you are being sort of welcomed into a community as you start a nonprofit. That was very poetic. I know, right? I'm just <laughs> undermining all of my points. Did you have a favorite one? Uh, yeah, I do. And I like it was the it was the choppiness. It was not the nat nature metaphors. That's actually where I sunk in very, very like concretely. And then later on again during the directions. But um, I loved this. Matter doesn't disappear; it transforms. Energy is the same way. The earth is layer upon layer of all that has existed, remembered by the dirt. It is time to turn capitalism into a fossil, time to turn the soil, turn to the horizon together. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I have a lot of little bookmarks, but um, I think I'm drawn to um, to this one. Um, it's on page 156 in uh, Creating More Possibilities. Um, it's just that we live in a system that thrives when conditions are abundant and diverse in a universe that holds contradictions and multitudes. And we often reject that chaotic, fertile reality too soon, as if we can't tolerate the scale of our own collective brilliance. That's beautiful. Um, that fear of um, what if, what if we, we uh, did envision something beautiful? And what if we make it come true? Yeah. yeah. My other favorite line was along the lines like, but first we imagine we are in an imagination battle. Yeah, the, she's going back to um, citizen Claudia Rankin. Um, mm -hmm. which, um, for those of you who don't love poetry, 
Um, I still highly recommend it. It's it's uh, one of the most powerful works, I think, um, of the decade. Um, and I also, uh, since we're speaking of poetry, I found a lot of these themes in um, Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb on inaugural day. Um, but I like that I keep seeing these. Um, it gives me much more hope than I had um, for the last four years. So, you know, it's interesting you say that because the the Maya Angelou line that Jessica loves, the horizon leans forward, is from Maya Angelou's 1993 mm -hmm. inaugural poem. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're running over. So thank you so much, Jessica and Jen and Meg and Brittany. Um, it was a really good conversation. I had a lot of fun. Um, and thank you to everyone who uh, listened with us uh, live and to those who are listening through your earbuds uh, later on. <laughs> to find some of the links to some of the things we talked about today, check out the website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. Remember, if you are donating to the Audre Lorde Project, um, send in your receipts to bedrosian.center at usc.edu or Jessica, do you have an email for Mockingbird? Yeah, you can send it to jessica at mockingbirdanalytics.com and uh, the top three will get um, a copy of the book. Uh, next month we're reading The Shadow of the Wind and um, Donna Jean is going to be on with us uh, when we talk about the British Museum for July. So uh, pick one, both, read along, send in your comments or questions, um, email us, social media, you know the drill. Um, the, thank you to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz, our beloved sound editors, the Brothers Hedden, and we are coming to you from the University of Southern California. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your neighbors. Thank you. Thank you.